It's a real honor for me to be here today with you. I want to thank Pastor Crawford again for the opportunity for me to come and speak to my own church every once in a while, and uh, it's, a great, it's a great joy to be here on this day, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I'm gone a lot <clears throat> from the church. Uh, I just got back from my 29th trip to China in the last eight, nine years. I'll be there at least one or two times this coming year. I've been to, sent by you guys to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Vietnam and Cuba. And we have teams heading out to India and, and uh, Colombia later on next month. I'll be in Romania and then I'll be going off to Guatemala. By the way, <clears throat> is Mark Schlupp here? Is he still? Mark, stand up. Mark is also on our board. We went to Guatemala together last year. So any complaints about what I say today, take it right to that board member. <clears throat> we'll be going back to Guatemala uh, in March, where over 500 pastors are going to come together, and they've asked us to help them answer four questions. Number one, what does the Bible say about human life, including life in the womb? Number two, what does the Bible say about the shedding of innocent blood, including abortion? Number three, how do we bring the good news of the gospel to the guilt and the grief of abortion, which so many of us have suffered, so that we are not just forgiven but set free and turn our shame into an open testimony? Number four, what does God call us to do to stop the shedding of innocent blood, and how have God's people throughout the centuries done so, going all the way back to the midwives in Egypt when they were commanded by law to kill their newborn baby boys. And how can we do it today? Pretty good questions, huh? And they really want to see the church all across their country stand up for life with compassion and with courage and become an army of good Samaritans, people who treasure their babies, who reject abortion, who see that abortion is an entry point for the gospel to almost everyone that we know, and to help them help one mother at a time as a neighbor helping a neighbor. This is the work that you send me to do, and I, I'm honored to do it. I say, getting to work is hard, but once I get there, I have a great time. <clears throat> so thank you. I'm here today because on Wednesday we'll be marking the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that said that while the unborn may be human, they're, only, uh, they're less than human, they're not full persons like the rest of us, and therefore are not deserving of the same equal rights and protections. And that is an ongoing battle of injustice. But tomorrow is also Martin Luther King holiday. And just as there are many churches that will be setting this day aside to focus on the life of the unborn, others will be focusing on the life and legacy of Martin Luther King and his long, bold leadership to secure equal rights for African Americans. They too were reckoned by the powerful to be human, but not 
quite fully human and therefore not deserving the same rights and protections in law and policy. And the truth is that these two groups tend to pass each other by and not talk to each other. And I'm not here to solve that problem. I'm still a student in that class, okay? And really, honestly, I wish that Martin Luther King were here speaking to us today because I think then we would be able to hear and set aside all of these different different political perspectives and all our history and just listen to what happens when we focus on the dignity of human life. And he would show us that whether we're talking about racism or whether we're talking about the unborn, they share the same root of evil. Amen? <clears throat> I did take time this week to read Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, which he gave in Washington in 1963. And I cannot help reading that, that if he were here today, he would be a vociferous advocate pro-life advocate in defense of the unborn. He really did summon us as a nation to hold out and to live out the true meaning of our own creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And I think that he would be able to bind us together again, to use the words of that speech to speed up the day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, born and unborn, would be free and free indeed. Amen? That's what brings us together, even though our focus today is going to be on those who've lost even the most basic human protections and are considered less than equal. Clearly, there are some things that are so wonderfully true and so powerful as they radiate out that you want everybody to see it. And you want them to be able to see how it affects their thinking and how it informs their decisions and how that itself affects their family and their neighbors and then it affects a whole community and it starts to change the way a culture thinks and how laws and policies are adapted. That's a powerful truth. And among those that are that powerful is the biblical view of the sanctity of human life. It comes into every culture and starts tearing down strongholds and promotes a different kind of life. At the same time, there are some things that are ongoing, deep, systemic, so evil, so horrifyingly ugly even to to show a picture of, usually involving the intentional killing of innocent people or on a massive scale. These are things that are so horrible that you turn your eyes from them and don't want to learn more because it's just too emotionally overwhelming. Or you take a good close look and with fear and trembling 
You resolve before God not to let that continue by the grace of God. And that is the cause that we're involved in today. The abomination of abortion and the beauty and the power of the sanctity of human life. I came to see this and to make this resolve to do something to stop it, in part by a phone call by a 16-year-old girl. This happened many years ago. She called me and she was so afraid, so in the grip of fear, that she spoke haltingly. She said, if I don't get an abortion, I'm going to kill myself. 16. And before I could think about what to say and what to do that might offer her some hope and a way forward, the full measure of her anguish came out. And she said, but I know. I know what abortion is. And I know that after my abortion, I'm going to have to kill myself. That is the battle at a different level. Eyeball to eyeball, neighbor to neighbor. This young woman feeling in the pincer, caught in the great conflict that is ongoing between God and Satan, between life and death, between temptation and ruin and guilt and trauma and salvation. In Jesus Christ. This is the war ongoing in her life. What is she saying? She's saying being pregnant at 16 in her life, in her mind, looks like the end of her life. Now, pregnancy is not a deadly disease, there is life after pregnancy. But what she's saying is that my life, as it has been projected, is over. It's it's, it's, it's being destroyed. And she sees nothing beyond that. In that situation, abortion seems like a just life-saving action. And the abortionist then is using the same words as our Savior is using. He's the one saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Only the yoke is death, guilt, grief, and on and on. At the same time, this young woman is seeing that abortion actually is the intentional killing of an innocent child. And whether it's by her religious upbringing whether it's by the sensitivity of her personality, her heart values, whether it's through reading science on fetal development, she knows this. And she sees herself, as most people do, <clears throat> as a loving and caring person, more willing to risk her life to save a child than she ever would to harm a child. In other words, she's about to abort herself. And she knows it. And that's the battle that we're in in the neighborhood level. 
And we have a role to play as God's people as a life-giving, life-protecting, life-rescuing force. Not using the weapons of this world, but the weapons of the Spirit. To use the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are not waging war against, according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. These are the deep-seated systemic Ways of thinking that form hard policies and eventually laws that destroy people. He goes on to say, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It is us who are in this world to fight this battle using his weapons that tear down and liberate people from these strongholds. Amen? Therefore, the battle before us in the pro-life movement must continually to be waged as a peaceful fight, done winsomely, done with persuasion, tearing down arguments, and with boldness, speaking up for the unborn until their full humanity is acknowledged. And the principle, the precious principle that we all love, this idea of equal rights for all people, applies to the born and the unborn. That's the goal. If the unborn is a member of the human family, then killing him or her to benefit others is a grave moral injustice. Conversely, if the unborn are not human, then abortion really is a matter of personal preference, like getting your hair cut or not. So it all comes down to one simple question. What is the unborn? And today I want to answer this question according to the Bible. You say, well, John, it's not going to be all that persuasive in the culture just to point to the Bible. Okay, maybe so. But on the other hand, if the Bible in any way indicated the unborn was not a human being, it would be quoted very often. Am I right? And besides, I'm certainly, I just don't know any other way to tear down strongholds, to break hard arguments, unless you first let every thought be taken captive by Christ. And for us to think things through through the lens of Scripture. I just don't know any other way. So this is what I got. So what then is the unborn according to the Bible? One of the most helpful passages in all my 30 years of doing this work that I found helpful in answering this question is Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading the first portion of it starting in verse 26 down to 38. And I encourage you to bring the question, what is the unborn to your mind as we read this passage. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And, his, and, she, and this is in the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed. Now, our story begins with the words, in the sixth month. That's a time stamp that we need to stop and ask what that means. In the preceding passage, which we did not read, we learned that Gabriel, the angel, also came to Zechariah. And Zechariah served as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Are you with me? And when he was there... Gabriel brought him good news. His wife, Elizabeth, had long prayed for relief from the dreadful, terrible pain of infertility, which she had suffered all through her childbearing years. But now God was about to give her a son. So we read in verse 24, after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. So our story begins with the words, in the sixth month, meaning when Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy, the following things happened. You'll see why that's important in a minute. If Elizabeth's pregnancy is surprising because she's too old to have children, Mary's is surprising because she's too young. She's too inexperienced. She is a virgin. And yet we read in verse 31 that the the angel comes to her and says to her, Mary, you are going to conceive a son and give birth to a son. What is conceived? A son. A son is a male human being. What does she give birth to? A son. This is our first indicator that from God's perspective, you are a son or a daughter from conception. Jesus was not something that was conceived and only later developed into a son. He was a son and Mary's son from the moment of conception. Last week when I was teaching this, someone raised their hand and said, it may not work to take the language applied to Jesus and generalize to the rest of us. After all, he is the son of God. He, something special going on here with him. And of course, that is true. He is special. But the wonder of the incarnation 
the true miracle of it is that in the incarnation, God or Jesus became like us in all ways except without sin. But no matter, perhaps she's right. It doesn't matter because the same language that is used to describe Elizabeth's conception is used to, uh, Mary's conception is used to describe Elizabeth. So turn with me to verse 36. And here we read, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also, what? Conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. You see, from God's perspective, you are conceived a son, you're born as a, or let me broaden it out, you're conceived a child, you're born as a child, you're raised as a child, and no matter how old you are right now, you're still your mother's child. Am I right? You've always been a child from conception. And this is language not limited only to Luke chapter 1. It's a biblical way of thinking. You go back to Genesis chapter 4, and we see Adam knowing his wife Eve. And here's what we read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. You see, in God's perspective, it was Cain that was going to be conceived and Cain that was going to be born. The life of Cain began at conception. In Job chapter 3, we find Job in the midst of such tremendous suffering that he wishes that he never lived. Have you ever been in that place? I don't think I've been there, but I know you can get to that place where the You're just so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief that you wish you had never been born. Job goes even further back. Listen to him describe his life. He says in Job 3, verse 3, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. The man Job was conceived and he was born. And at this moment in his life, he wishing he wasn't. From God's perspective, you are, you are human right from conception and you develop from within. Of course, science tells us the same thing. There's no difference here. At conception, you became a living, distinct, and a whole human being. You can look up any textbook out there on human fetal development and it will tell you what I just said. Let me use the one called the developing human, clinically oriented embryology. Here it it reads, a zygote is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization, which is the same word as conception, the process during which a male gamete unites with a female to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. There it is. Human life begins at conception. Well, good news likes to be shared. And Mary, hearing this news, wants to rush off to see Elizabeth, who also has good news. So let's go on and continue to read our story and see what else happens 
that is so surprising. Beginning in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So when Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby inside Elizabeth greets the baby inside Mary. And a womb-to-womb worship service breaks out. Complete with leaping for joy. All those charismatics really love that part, especially. Who is this child who is leaping for joy? You will come to know him as John the Baptist. And what is John's mission? Why was he sent? Well, he was sent to proclaim the coming of the Lord and to call people to make themselves ready to receive him. And we read about him going public with this ministry 30 years later. We read about that in Luke chapter 3. But on this day, in this moment, John is carrying out his mission more privately and declaring to his own mama that the Lord has come. Rejoice with me. Amen? There's a bit of a mystery here. I do find the whole thing breathtaking to read about. Gabriel said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. It says that in verse 15 of our chapter. It is possible that John the Baptist is one of the few people in the world that were born again before they were born. This is surely rare, but it's not unique. Psalm 71, the writer says in verse 6, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is continually of you. I, I was around for 17 years before the Lord got a hold of me and heard any praise from me. But with John the Baptist, it began from the womb, worshiping another child in the womb, complete with dancing. Well, let's leave some things a mystery. What is revealed is that John the Baptist is leaping for joy and proclaiming this message to his mother, and she joins the worship. She also gets the message of what all this jumping around is all about. She sees or discerns that as she's standing in front of Mary, that she is carrying the Son of God. Who is, at that moment, very small. How big is John the Baptist? How old is he? 
He's six months old. How big is he? Well, if you know anything about fetal science, you'll know that he's a, he's a little bit bigger than my hand, and he's jumping around in there. Definitely you could feel that. But how old is Jesus at this point? Well, that we have to think about a little bit. This is where our time stamps come, become important. So Mary meets Gabriel up in Nazareth, which is in the north, just to the east of the Sea of Galilee. You have the Sea of Galilee, you have a river here called the Jordan, the Dead Sea, and she lives up in Nazareth. When the, the angel comes to her, she is not pregnant. Our text says that you will become pregnant. You will conceive a son. By the time she arrives at Elizabeth's home, she is pregnant. And Elizabeth lived in one of the towns outside of Jerusalem, where, again, Zechariah, her husband, was a servant, a priest at the temple. So our text says that she went with haste to go from one to the other. Now, if you go as the crow flies, that's about 65 miles, about 105 kilometers or so. Maybe that was a two or three day journey. If she went the way most people would have traveled, she would have gone over toward the road that followed the, the, the Jordan River because Jews generally did not go in between these two cities because it's the area of Samaria. And that's where all the racial issues came up and, 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 and it was more dangerous. So most likely she traveled up over to the river road, went on down and came on up. And if that was the case, then it may have taken her more like five or six days. But she went with haste. And I think this means that she went immediately. And I think the indication for that is actually found in Luke chapter 1, verse 56 and 7 in which we read that after she arrives at Elizabeth's home, she stays three more months, up until the time that John is born. Quote, And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So our story begins in the sixth month. Mary arrives and stays three more months, and then the baby is born. That's the time frame. So it suggests to me that when it says that Mary went with haste, she didn't wait around for several weeks. She packed some things, and she started to see Elizabeth. This happened in a very short time. And the implication is, if it's five or six days, maybe a week, maybe eight days, who doesn't matter? The point is, that when John the Baptist is worshiping Jesus, and John is about this big, Jesus is developmentally a zygote at this time. And yet he's being worshipped as fully God and fully human. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful story. Thank you, Lord. That's a beautiful story that he has revealed. That's a wild moment. And from it, I think there are are three lessons that I would share with you. Three ways for us to leave here today more committed to live out a pro-life gospel, a gospel of life. Here's the first one. Number one, worship in wonder. I think all pro-life work really begins in worship, in seeing God, our creator, as well as our redeemer, 
We need to join the worship service here. My response when I read this story is to simply say, glory to God in the highest. This is amazing. And when you look at fetal development, you get the same idea. David was considering how God knit him together in his womb and it produced worship. For you created my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is what pro-life looks like. And this is the well that we need to start with and return to again and again and again. Amen? Delight in God as he has created us. Secondly, weep over abortion. The implication of our story in Luke is that everything that is said bad about abortion is true and much worse. It is not one thing among many things. It is a preeminent moral crisis because it involves the shedding of innocent blood. And the shedding of innocent blood is, a, is an abomination. And when it's done on a mass scale, it's an abomination. And when it's done as child sacrifice, it represented the height of abomination in the Old Testament. And we just do it today without all the ceremony. But it's what we do because we want something else. It's as bad as you can make it. It's as bad and even words will fall short of it. It's right for us to lament. There are some things worth crying about and this is one of them. God gives us a whole book in the Bible just to help us grieve injustice and waywardness and rebellion and brokenness and all the pain that it that it comes with. It's called the book of lamentation. And this is one of those areas in life where it's good to lament and to grieve. And for me, lamenting actually means repenting. I think I'm not alone here, but I think most of us can repent for either choices that we've made or simply not saying anything to or doing anything to stop it. Do you want to know the the worst day of my life as a pastor, as a pastor now, as someone called to lead and to teach the Bible. This is my worst moment. In my church some years ago, a woman stood up weeping and she said that she had had an abortion one year ago. And she said, I prayed that if what I'm doing is wrong, that God would send someone to stop me. That was a painful day because God had sent someone to stop her. That's my job is to make known to people what God has said and to help them think through things from God's perspective. And for those years, I remained utterly silent, thinking it as a secondary issue or not a gospel issue or politics and trying to avoid all that stuff. No! It left her vulnerable, left her confused. And she had to repent over the shedding of innocent blood and I had to repent alongside of her for staying silent about the shedding of innocent blood. But it's medicinal because when the weeping endures for the night, guess what happens come morning? The joy comes. And this is one of those things if we can weep and confess them to each other, we can bring the blood of the, of the lamb to it. And trust me, 
If abortion is the shedding of innocent blood, so is the cross. And it is more powerful and able to cleanse our consciences so that we can serve the living God. Am I right? And thirdly, I would say, speak up in defense of the innocent. That's just this moment where this issue comes up and you're immediately confronted whether you want to get into it or not. Stay silent, brush it off, pass by, or not. And I encourage you that if the unborn is human, as we have established, then the Proverbs apply to them as to other people. Open your mouth and judge rightly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That has many applications, of course, but it includes the unborn if they're human. For me, this has meant a willingness to challenge the arguments raised in its defense. And to tear down those arguments using truth and reason. A little love doesn't help hurt either. <clears throat> the truth is that defenders of elective abortion must either deny science or deny the idea of equal rights. Most people start out denying science. They'll say abortion is justified because it's not human. It's just a clump of cells. Not many people can get away with that for long because science is pretty clear and there's no disputing it that human life begins at conception and there's no other place. It begins. So what happens after this is that people then say, well, yes, it is human, but it's not a person like me. In other words, I don't have to protect it. It's not, it's not, they don't need to deserve the same rights and protections that I deserve. Here's an example of that. Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Williams writes in defense of, of elective abortion. She writes, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for people like me to talk about. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. Clearly this woman is unhappy or ill at ease with her own position. Her stronghold might crumble over pie and coffee with somebody like you. To help her think it through and to tear down that, her ideas that, no, if it's human, we want to treat it as a human. We want to have equal rights for all people. Because all people are made in the image of God. And finally, speaking up means being ready to help women like my 16-year-old caller. If you leave here ready to speak up in the providence of God when you meet someone along your path who's in a crisis, you just need to remember four words. Are you ready? You don't even have to write them down. They're going to go right into your heart because they're already there. Let me help you. That's all you got to do. That's what speaking up sounds like. Let me help you. You don't even have to worry what you're going to do after that because love is its own teacher. It'll teach you what to say. It'll teach you things like, tell me what's going on. It'll, 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 it will teach you to do what we just heard was happening this morning when the woman identified as in crisis. Nobody had to go and read a book to figure out what to do. Love is its own teacher. If you leave here today willing to rejoice or to worship in the wonder of your creator, 
If you're willing to weep over abortion and you're willing to speak up for the innocent, I think you've done the first things well. And beyond that, God will lead you. Amen?